Just a few days following the death of Billy the Kid, a newspaper out of Las Vegas, New Mexico, the Daily Optic, ran the following story under the bold headline, The Fatal Finger. Quote, An esteemed friend of the Optic at Fort Sumner, L.W. Hell, has sent us the index finger of Billy the Kid, the one which has snapped many a man's life into eternity. It is well-preserved in alcohol and has been viewed by many in our office today. If the rush continues, we shall purchase a small tent and open a sideshow to which complimentary tickets will be issued to our personal friends. End quote. Word spread like wildfire, and before that particular edition was even printed, there was already a crowd milling outside the optic, looking to catch a glimpse of the late Billy Bonnie's trigger finger. However, despite the excitement, no tickets were issued, no tent was ever produced, and any sideshows conducted were done so in private right there in the offices of the Optic for just a handful of lucky viewers. Which begs the question, was there ever truly a finger to begin with, or was this just some sort of elaborate hoax? And if there was an appendage floating in a jar of alcohol, did it really belong to the notorious Billy the Kid? And speaking of Billy, how do we know that he's for sure still resting there at Fort Sumner, unmolested under the marker bearing his name? Let's get to fingering and find out. My name's Josh, and you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza. Now, the editor over there at the Las Vegas Optic, old boy named Russell Kissler, didn't hold on to that alleged finger for very long. He sold it to the owner of a drugstore, Albert Coons, for $150, and less than two months later, the mysterious digit found itself nearly 700 miles to the east in the metropolis of Waterville, Kansas. And we know this because not only did the Las Vegas Optic report on it, but so did a paper out of Waterville, noting, quote, Mr. Albert Coons returned home last Monday from Las Vegas. He's looking healthy and hearty and brought as a relic of barbarism, a specimen of the physical existence of Billy the Kid. End of quote. The Optic would print just one more article in October of 1881, stating that the mysterious member was all the way in Indiana and on display at various fairs and carnivals. And after that, nothing. Whatever became of the finger or where it ultimately ended up remains a mystery. Maybe. We'll get to that in just a moment, but let's take a look at the man who delivered the digit to Las Vegas in the first place, the aforementioned and esteemed L.W. Hell. Lauer William Hell was what was referred to in them days as a peddler, sort of an Old West version of a door-to-door salesman who traveled from town to town with a cart full of miscellaneous wares. And by all accounts, Hell was damn good at his job. Type of guy that could sell snow to an Eskimo and leave the Eskimo thinking that he got the better of the deal. And per stories passed down through the Hell family, not only was L.W. inclined to buy such curiosities, but he was also of the generous bent. So the idea of him procuring said appendage and then gifting it to his newspaper buddy over in Las Vegas certainly was not out of the question. The puzzle is, who had the finger before Mr. Hell? Who'd he get it from? And who had access to the kid's body before it got stuck six feet under? And I know what you're thinking. Pat Garrett, right? And, well, you're not the only one. For many a year following the kid's death, Pat and his deputies, Kit McKinney and John W. Poe, were accused of making off with a part or parts of Billy Bonnie's corpse. Thing is, I'm not so sure as to the feasibility of this theory. A common misconception is that nobody other than Pat Garrett saw the kid's body or that he and his men rushed to bury Billy under the cover of darkness before anybody could take a good look. 
I don't really know where people get these ideas from, but that is absolutely not the case. Billy remained inside Pete Maxwell's room for the rest of that night, as Pat and the deputies made ready to defend themselves from the angry crowd. According to John Poe, quote, We spent the remainder of the night on the Maxwell premises, keeping constantly on our guard as we expected attack by the friends of the dead man, end quote. The next morning, once tensions had cooled just a tad, permission was finally given to move the body. Billy was laid out on a bench and cleaned and dressed by the women, candles were placed all around him, and there was even a coroner's jury. Nobody can say for certain how many people attended Billy's wake and funeral, but we do know the names of at least 48 of them. It's my opinion that had Garrett or Poe or McKinney added insult to injury by cutting off one of Billy's fingers or some other part of his body, all hell would have broke loose. Remember, they were already walking on eggshells to begin with. Had a few more rowdy individuals been present that morning at the fort, I do think it's likely that there would have been additional gunplay. And for what it's worth, both Garrett and John Poe were adamant that the kid was buried completely intact. Why were they adamant? Well, because of all the stories popping up claiming otherwise, and not just in the daily optic. One dude was peddling what he said was the kid's hair, another his skull, and yet another confidence man carrying around an entire damn skeleton, claiming it was Billy Bonney. Hell, there were so many rumors that not only did Pat travel back to Fort Sumner to check on the grave, but he also addressed the issue in his book, The Authentic Life of Billy the Kid, published in 1882. In one of the last passages, Garrett wrote, quote, I said that the body was buried at the cemetery at Fort Sumner. I wish to add that it is there today intact. Skull, fingers, toes, bones and every hair on the head that was buried with the body, newspaper men to the contrary. Some presuming swindlers have claimed to have the kid's skull on exhibition, or one of his fingers or some other portion of his body. And one medical gentleman has persuaded credulous idiots that he has all the bones strung up on wires. It is possible that there's a skeleton on exhibition somewhere in the States, or even in this territory, which was procured somewhere down on the Rio Pecos. We have them, lots of them in this section. The banks of the Pecos are dotted from Fort Sumner to the Rio Grande with unmarked graves, and the skeletons of all sizes, ages, and complexions. Any showman of ghastly curiosities can resurrect one or all of them and place them on exhibition. Again, I say the kid's body lays undisturbed in the grave, and I speak of what I know. End quote. And then you got Deputy Poe, who wrote the following in 1915. Quote, there have been many wild and untrue stories of this affair. Another was that we cut off the fingers and carried them away as trophies or souvenirs. The story that we had cut off and carried away his fingers was even more absurd as the thought of such a thing never entered our minds. And besides, we were not that kind of people. End quote. But could somebody else have dug up the kid's body and cut off a finger? Maybe. But the mystery appendage in question showed up in Vegas just a few days after Billy's death. So I do find that kind of unlikely. And while we know that the various markers for the grave have been vandalized over the years, so much so that they eventually had to cover the site with concrete and place a cage around it, there's no evidence of anyone actually getting to Billy's body. At least not yet. And it ain't from a lack of trying. I think there's been at least two legal battles so far over digging up Billy's bones, and I'm positive that more will follow. And who knows, maybe one of these days the courts will finally give him the green light. I'm not sure how I feel about that. I believe the evidence that Billy was indeed killed by Pat Garrett and buried at Fort Sumner is overwhelmingly irrefutable for any reasonable person. If you've truly looked at the evidence, the idea of the death being faked or whatever is absurd. 
As such, as far as I'm concerned, if you're going to dig up the body for DNA testing or whatever, it would either be done purely out of morbid curiosity or just to placate a handful of fanatical conspiracy theorists. I'm not sure where you draw the line there. I do feel there needs to be a certain amount of respect and reverence for grave sites, and we can't just start digging people up based on internet rumors. All that said, to be perfectly honest, if they do decide to pull up the casket and pop that bad boy open, I'd be lying if I said that I wouldn't get a little excited. I mean, I'm as curious as anybody else as to whether Pat really shot the kid as he claimed, you know, in the chest, or if it was in the back, or with a shotgun, or whatever. The findings would be very interesting. Like I said, though, just not sure where to draw that line. At what point do we just let sleeping outlaws lie? As far as whether or not Billy's body is truly underneath that gated-in marker, I'm thinking it most likely is. I have, many times in the past, repeated the claim that we don't know for sure where Billy's exact burial location is. There was a big flood over at Fort Sumner in 1904 that covered the cemetery in like four feet of water. And according to some, all of the markers were washed away and subsequent attempts at locating the actual graves were just educated guesses. Turns out this may not be the case. We know that Garrett returned to Fort Sumner with the author Emerson Huff in, I think it was 1905, so after the flood, and they were easily able to locate Billy's grave. And remember, Fort Sumner was a legit military installation before Lucian Maxwell bought it. And between the years of 1863 and 1868, there were something like 21 or 22 soldiers buried there. And once again, after the flood, the army had the bodies of all those soldiers reinterred to Santa Fe. The guy in charge of that particular operation, Charles Dudrow, interviewed many a Fort Sumner old-timer, mapped out the cemetery by plot numbers, and successfully located and dug up all of the soldiers. I'm not sure if he was able to identify each one by name, but he did crack open their caskets and verify that they were indeed soldiers, he even commented on how well-preserved the bodies were. What's more, while Dudrow was making that map, he also jotted down the location of Billy the Kid's grave as given to him by the aforementioned Fort Sumner old-timers, people that were actually there when Billy was buried. And the location on his map is within just a few feet of where the fenced-in marker now stands. And the main takeaway here, to me at least, is that if that flood did wreak havoc on the cemetery as many assume, as I assumed for years, why was Dudrow able to locate the soldiers pretty much exactly where the old-timer said he would? And why were the bodies, all of whom who had been in the ground for like 40 years, in such good condition. And then you got Delvinia Maxwell. Remember her? She was absolutely present when Billy was buried, and she lived for many years after that flood and would often take visitors to Billy's grave. She knew exactly where it was. And finally, even the late great historian Frederick Nolan believes that that big marker over there at Fort Sumner is likely within just a couple of feet of the actual grave of Billy the Kid. So yeah, I think more than likely if you start digging, you'll find what you're looking for. And yeah, I think that includes all 10 of his fingers. How can I be so sure? Well, turns out that by the end of 1881, the Daily Optic had the largest circulation of any newspaper in all of New Mexico by offering to show that finger to anybody who was willing to pony up for a year's subscription to the paper. The whole damn thing was just a big publicity stunt to drum up sales. And they even admitted to it being a hoax a decade later. There may have been a human finger in a jar, but even by the Optic's own admission, it didn't belong to Billy the Kid. By the way, when Pat Garrett returned to Fort Sumner, visited the graves with Emerson Hoff, story goes that he stared there at the ground for a few moments in silence, then walked over to the buckboard and got a canteen and took a nice long pull from it. 
I'm sure you can probably guess what was in the canteen. Once Garrett quenched his thirst, he lifted the canteen and said, Well, here's to the boys anyway. If there is any other life, I hope they'll make better use of it than they did the one I put them out of. And that's about all I've got on Billy Bonnie's missing finger. Kind of a short episode today, I know, but stick around, we ain't done yet. Got a couple of important announcements to make. Real quick, let's hear from this episode's sponsor. All right, welcome back. Now, if you'd like to learn more about Billy's missing trigger finger, or the alleged trigger finger, check out the article in the show notes by Robert J. Stahl. Also, if you'd like to hear a song about the finger, I got a nice little treat for you. Man, you've heard me mention on this show in the past, the author Mark Lee Gardner also happens to be a very talented musician. Mark released an album a while back titled Outlaws, Songs of Robbers, Rustlers, and Rogues. And he's got a song on there about that daggum finger. And I promise you, it's actually really good. I legitimately got goosebumps just listening to it. So check out the link to that in the show notes, and make sure you give Mark's entire album a listen. Also, check out one of his many amazing books on the Old West. Dude is one hell of an author. His most recent, The Earth is All That Lasts, takes a look at Sitting Bull, Crazy Horse, and the Battle of Little Bighorn. It is a must-have in any collection as far as I'm concerned. All right, now let's move on to the announcements. Number one, Daddy messed up. All right, big time. On the episode on Al Swearingen, I stupidly and idiotically proclaimed that Deadwood was in eastern South Dakota. It's not. It's in western South Dakota. Okay? Rest assured that I have flogged myself thoroughly while a throng of onlookers chanted shame over and over again. I've given myself several slaps on the wrist and more than a few verbal thrashings. Thank you to everybody who pointed out this embarrassing, shameful, dumb mistake. You are smart. I'm stupid. I was wrong. You were right. You're the best. I'm the worst. You're very good looking, and I am not an attractive person at all. Okay, with that out of the way, uh, the next few weeks are going to be a little different here on the Wild West Extravaganza. I've been saying for the longest about how I want to re-record some of the older episodes. Well, next week, you'll be getting one such re-recording. It's not even so much as a re-recording as a remixing. I'm not going to say which episode, but it is one of my all-time favorites. I got a few more tools now at my disposal than I previously did as far as audio quality goes. And a lot of these older episodes I want to show off, kind of showcase them, but I'm kind of embarrassed to because they don't sound very good. So I'm going to give this one a makeover, record a new intro and a new outro, and that'll be coming your way bright and early next Wednesday. The week after that, we'll be doing pretty much the same thing with uh, the series I did on Livery and Johnson. If you're not familiar, The Liver Eater was the inspiration behind the excellent movie, Jeremiah Johnson. That was a two-part series, and I'm going to consolidate it into one long episode, record a new intro and outro, and remix the audio so it doesn't sound like I'm talking in a damn wind tunnel. I will then release it into the wild for what I will hope will be your listening pleasure. The week after that will be an actual re-recording, kind of like the one I just did on Al Swearingen, with all new material and all new information. I'm not going to tell you who the subject matter is, but let's just say it's a sassy bandit who went on one hell of a crime spree. And then, following that, we will finally tackle Pat Garrett once and for all. Going to really get down to it. Find out what kind of a man he was. Are the rumors true? Was he a vampire? And just in case you're worried, I'm not running out of material, I assure you. The only thing I'm running out of is time. Remember, this used to be an every other week kind of show. I started releasing weekly episodes back, I think, in November with the Frank Canton series. 
And ever since then, so like almost exactly seven months now, if I'm not mistaken, there's only been one week where I didn't release an episode. The problem is that's not an easy schedule to keep, especially when my research often includes reading a couple of books and writing out 8,000 or 10,000 word essays. So yeah, these re-releases will not only buy me a little bit of time to finalize everything for the upcoming new material, but also give me the opportunity to showcase what I consider to be some of my best work. That's what I call win-win, homeboy. Also, there are other things going on in the background, some of which are very exciting that I think you're really going to like, but I can't announce it just yet. All right, that's all I've got in the way of updates, and I think that's a wrap on this week's episode. Hope you enjoyed getting fingered as much as I did. Don't forget to check out that music by Mark Gardner along with his books. Make sure you head on over to wildwestextra.com and hit that contact button. Let me know what's on your mind. And for the love of all this holy, sign up for my 100% free newsletter. Do it. Do it now. Link in the show notes. Till next week, try not to rob any graves. And don't stick that finger in your mouth until you smell it first. Adios. smart, I'm stupid. <laughs>